It's not just the one place. <laughs> I have pain here. In my famous ass. It's not that bad, is it? Well, you can hear them and you can you can see them a little bit. I mean, you know, fortunately, you know, you, you learn to play the ball, but I'm not going to say it was a, a total distraction, but it is a little annoying, maybe. No, I shouldn't have to change for any other circumstances. I like my hair. It's just things flying in the air that you're not supposed to be seeing. It's not that bad, is it? Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Body Serve for episode 78. My name is Jonathan. And I'm James. And this has been a breakneck last few days of tennis. And we're not even talking about the Serena pregnancy news. No, that's like totally old news. This has been a very stressful weekend. Like, I actually dread opening up Twitter. I'm really just kind of done with all this. Is that why you suggested we took our fat asses to the buffet last night? Yeah. I think your exact words were I need a break from tennis. I need to go stuff my face. That I would never say that. <laughs> stuff my face. That's so not classy. <laughs> I was just thinking a few weeks ago that 2017, while it's delivered a lot of wonderful storylines, be it Federer coming back from the dead, Nadal playing well, making the Australian final, Venus making the Australian final, Serena winning, like all these stories that put the the old guard back into focus. Felt like a nice, slow-paced, enjoyable moment. Different from the frenzy of early 2016, right? Mm. Where you had the match-fixing, the Sharpova news, that press conference... Everything more. Yeah, everything was just blowing up yeah. in the early part of 2016. And here we are. It's happened. It took four months, but we are square in the middle of a tennis tornado. And it was really like all in one day. All in one morning, if you're in the Western Hemisphere. While we were sleeping. Well, I unfortunately had to endure it live. <laughs> I was late for work because yeah. <laughs> I woke up and, you know, doing my cursory scrolling through Twitter, catching up on what I missed while I was sleeping and uh, I just couldn't believe the stuff that was mm. going on. Every time I thought I was caught up I was like there's something else I missed. Before we get into all that, let's just do a little bit of a a detailing of what's coming in this episode. Okay. So originally this episode was going to be mostly just breaking down the weekend in tennis, but the kind of the showpiece of the episode is our interview with Caitlin Thompson, who is the publisher of Racket Magazine. Full disclosure, Racket Magazine is sponsoring us for this episode, specifically their uh, issue number three. But beyond us being able to monetize the podcast a little bit, there is a lot of wonderful stuff that came out of that interview with you and Caitlin. Yeah, and we are actually fans of Caitlin and the magazine, so it's, it's really not difficult to say nice things about them. But just to, you know, keep that integrity intact have to be honest up front. The moments where the interview veered from talking about the upcoming issues specifically, those really brought out some fascinating dialogue. Yeah. So Caitlin is going to be at the end of the episode. Of course, we're going to have to tackle this Romania, Great Britain... Nastasi bullshit. This, I mean, this like shit tornado. Monte Carlo, Rafael Nadal won la decima. The first, is, the first. Yeah, hopefully the first of several. 
And that's basically the most normal thing that happened this weekend. Rafael Nadal winning, being the first person in the open era to win 10 titles at the same place. You gotta cite that shit. What? Those are not your original thoughts. Who said that? The Big Joker oh, on the Body Surf okay. Twitter. <laughs> Shout out to Big Joker. <laughs> and so we'll talk about that. We'll talk about Fed Cup. We'll talk about Max Eisenbud. Uh, yeah, so let's just get into it. This is going to be a long episode, so no more preamble. Serena's pregnant. We know this by now. Have you talked yourself down from the ledge in uh, the last few days? I guess, I don't know. I haven't really thought about it that much. I feel like I got all my feelings out in the last podcast. People actually told me that. That I was mad. And it was clear. Mad, mad angry and mad crazy. Yes, both. <laughs> I'm still upset that she's going to be missing the rest of the year, but what can we do? You can't do anything. She's living her life. Yeah, she's living her life like it's golden. <laughs> you know, that's all. <laughs> I do. So Christopher Clary had Patrick quoted in his most recent story about Serena's pregnancy. And Patrick is always good for a few juicy tidbits, right? Clary was a, a good for a few juicy tidbits himself in this piece. Right. He just dropped very nonchalantly that Serena and Patrick were once romantically linked. Which you asked me, has this ever been confirmed in print by a journalist? Like, that it's fact. And I it was really... presented as fact, like it's right. been acknowledged right. by the parties involved, which I've never seen that. And I asked the question on Twitter and I didn't get any responses from anybody to support that mm -hmm. other than to say, well, we know we've seen the pictures. Yeah, we've all seen the pictures, but that doesn't rise to the level of being dropped as fact as a segue line in a New York Times article, right. I don't think. Like, of course, we know. We've, you know, we've seen the pictures. We all assumed that they were together. But I don't know that it's been confirmed by a legit source like the New York Times. So that was interesting. We also learned that Patrick only knew about the pregnancy a little over two weeks ago. At the time that the article came out, he said 15 days ago, Serena told him. And that... <laughs> and you that, must keep a very uh, thorough journal. He's also busy with his academy because... Wouldn't you be concerned if after winning the Australian Open first week of February would have been, or end of January, mm. you hadn't heard from Serena in how long? Right. Like, well, you don't know when she's coming back, what she's doing, why she's pulling out of these tournaments. I mean, you gotta find something to do. He said, I was actually expecting it because I know her by heart. I know how to read between the lines, even if she had told me nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Patrick wants to take credit for most things in life, if possible. Well, we know this. And so, I guess from his chateau in Paris, he was just like, yeah, she's probably pregnant. That's why I haven't heard from her, obviously. Clary goes on to say, when they began working together in 2012, Williams was 30, and Marata Glue said she told him that she wanted to win one last major singles title. Which again... Yeah, which... I know I've heard before, and I don't really believe. Serena, I do believe that Serena may have said it, but she definitely didn't buy it either. Because she had just been in the US Open final. She really had a great clay season, but then lost in the first round of that French Open to Rosano. And so it's not like her career was over. You know, she she had been winning other titles. So I don't think that Serena was thinking, oh, this is my last chance. <laughs> 
This is my last chance to beat Margaret Court. Yes, definitely. Patrick then is quoted in ending the piece by saying, I do think she'll come back and she will come back all the more if everyone thinks she's done. So I encourage you to write that she's finished, please. <laughs> and actually, uh, plenty of people have already. Well, you've been speculating on it. Yeah, but not positive. Like, I've seen some journalists say, yeah, she's done. Especially in response to this New York Times piece. Really? Yeah. The fact that Patrick didn't know about it. But you know what? This week is not about Serena. No, but also be, to backtrack a little bit. Haven't we learned by now that there are no tea leaves to be read when it comes to the Williams sisters? Like, Serena will do whatever the F she wants to do. Yeah, basically. As will Venus. Like, I've talked to quite a few people over the course of the, the lifespan of this podcast. And so many times I've heard people who are in the know or who are paid for their opinions saying, yeah, yeah... I, yeah, pr probably going to get a Venus retirement right, soon. Right, right. You know, like... And, and that was two and a half years ago. Yeah, and Venus is probably going to outplay them all. Like, Venus, mm. when she gets to the 2020 Olympics, she'll be like, well, let's see how the next cycle goes. <laughs> I know. The difference between the two is that Serena, I think, takes pleasure in proving people wrong. So if people said she was finished, that it's going to be important to her to prove them wrong. If she, if she wants to come back. Venus is just out here doing her own thing. Like, just doing whatever she wants. And if people criticize her, it's like, I think she's insulated enough from that that it doesn't really bug her. But the point is, these speculations are fruitless. They're, they're, well, yeah. They're futile. And all it does is stress me out. So, please, everyone, refrain. There'll be more to come on the fallout from Serena being absent from the tour, specifically who we think can step up to fill that vacuum and maybe snatch a few titles in her absence, right? Because there's mm. a huge opportunity now. Well, I mean, I can think of 12 people off the top of my head who have a legit chance to steal a major. But that's for another time because this is a packed episode. Now we're going to move on to Fed Cup, mm. where, to start before we get into the fuckery, the U.S. team beat the three-time defending champion... Czech Republic, and winners of five of the last six Fed Cup titles, mm -hmm. a team that didn't feature its best players. Uh, I mean, all respect to the players who were there, because Siniakova got a good win, uh, Vondrusova, I think her name is, mm -hmm. got a good win. Uh, they did their best, but to be honest, Czech Republic has a very deep bench, possibly the biggest in world tennis, and they fielded like their C team, right? The USA didn't have their best team either. Like they led with Coco Vandewey. Yeah. Obviously, Serena's out. Venus didn't play. Madison didn't play. And they went with Lauren Davis, who, I mean, can be beaten and was mm -hmm. beaten by Vondrusova. Right. And then on the other side of that semifinal draw, you had Belarus upsetting Switzerland. Mm -hmm. Because that Swiss team featured Baczynski, they were always going to win doubles with Hingis and Baczynski playing right. together, which they did. I think they won 6-love, six 6-1 six in that doubles match. But Belarus somehow, behind Sasnovich and Co, upset the Swiss team. And so it's going to be the USA versus Belarus in November, 
where possibly we'll have the big guns coming out for that final. Mm-hmm. You'll have possibly Venus available, Madison available. Hell, Sloan could be available. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, and then also Vika will probably be yeah. available as well. I mean, Belarus winning has to be seen as a massive upset. But if the USA plays fields a better team, then it, they're going to be pretty tough to beat. But that, let me tell you, as far as Fed Cup goes, that was like the last thing people were talking about this week. No, because it was all about Romania. It was all Nastasi, really. That's that's it. Everything Fed Cup of note came out of Romania this mm-hmm. weekend. And so it started... You have it listed on the, the agenda here, Nastasi Fed Cup fuckery dash male fragility is real. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll get into that. But I, I do want to address... Conta in tears versus Nastasi storming around the place and, and how, how we view those things. Mm-hmm. Because emotional fragility comes in many different forms. But first, before the tennis even started, Nastasi said, dropped this incredibly offensive comment about Serena Williams and her unborn child. Because jo- he thinks it's hilarious, right? It was, it was just an aside joke. He wasn't even oh, yeah, featured in the conversation at that point. And he quips, I, I wonder what color the baby will Wasn't come. it Simona being asked about it? Mm-hmm. And then he was like, oh, I wonder what color is going to be chocolate with some vanilla yeah. or something like that. Which, like, that is so offensive. And a Simona, man, Simona Halep looked embarrassed in the moment. And if that was not a sign of things to come, like, <laughs> if only she had known, just run. And just then... Run. He in the in the photo op situation where he and Kiathavang shake hands or mm. whatever, he has his hands all over her shoulder and whatnot, and he asks for her hotel room number. Right, which I guess was the second day in a row he had yeah. a, this joke that he keeps carrying on. Yeah, like he's we're supposed to think it's charming or something. It was off to an auspicious start, right? And then yesterday, shit just hit the fan. He was pissed off because the British team were peeved that the Romanian crowd was a little wild during the Conta Kirsteia match. Mm-hmm. Somehow, Nastasi is now on the court. He's accosting the umpire, calling him a fucking asshole. Then he moves over and faces Anne Kjathavang, the British captain, and Ioana Conta, and calls them fucking bitches. And so he gets thrown off the court, and eventually he gets thrown out of the stadium. Like, it was an incredible scene, something like you never, ever see in tennis. The crowd was obviously going crazy. Kirstea was yelling across the court, what did he say to you? What did he say to you? They, she didn't know what was going on. They then go on to play another game, and then Kanta, by the end of it, is in tears. Mm. And then they stop the match. At which point, Halep takes a microphone and addresses the crowd. She's trying to play middle person peacemaker it was just crazy man it's this is her hometown crowd she was so excited to play in constanta she suggested nastasi as fed cup captain because in romania nastasi is legend he's the tennis legend right he's the most decorated champion grand slam champion he won world number one and he was a pop culture icon at the time. He was part of the, you know, those 70s bad boys of tennis. He was famous. The thing is, like, Romanians already know who he is. They know what to expect. A Romanian journalist was quoted by the Daily Mail saying, 
that they were happy finally that the world can see what Nastase is really like. <laughs> but to, you know, to tennis people, we know this as well. This well, is right, not new. Right. So the ITF would have seen this before. Like in previous ties, he had incidents as well. Mm-hmm. And so this is a women's tennis competition. And who are we talking about? We're talking about Nastasi. We're talking about a captain who was disgraced and banned from his own competition. And then we're holding the women accountable for what we perceive to be the things that have gone wrong right. in response to it. And so the first thing, Simona Halep, is the face of Romanian tennis today, playing in her hometown. People have blamed her for suggesting Nastasi as captain. Like, I'm not going to go there. She was so humiliated. And again, I feel like this is like watching Muguruza in tears trying to get her coach on the court. These are women who are forced to be in subservient positions to the men who are controlling their faith. And it's just like these are some of the best women in the world at what they do. They're powerful. They're talented. Like, I, I'm tired of seeing professional athletes degraded in this way. And people are so easily distracted. It's this bait-and-switch bullshit that we saw, while not the same thing, but that we saw in the election with Trump and, and Clinton, right? Mm. Trump, you list 25 unimaginable, unspeakable, just crazy shit that would disqualify anybody from being president. Mm. But her emails and the fact that we don't trust her, that she's a liar, and... But that she lied about her flu. Right? The misogyny that's at play here. Because that's, that is that is the base of it, right? That's at the core of it. Like, we always seem to revert to blaming women for the mistakes that men make. Mm-hmm. And, and requiring them to clean up after them. Right. And so that's where we have Soran and Kirstea. She was upset. She had obviously been crying before her press conference. And so, you know, I heard these comments out of context at first. And I was like, oh, God, just don't. You know, she was criticizing Kanta's break, and she didn't understand why she was allowed to take a break. Now, when you see the entire press conference in English, it makes a little more sense, right? Mm-hmm. If if we're taking all the, the context out of it, Kirsteo was disadvantaged by this as well, right? Like, she didn't ask for all this to happen. No. She didn't know what was said, but she also didn't understand why her opponent was allowed to leave the court and then come back. Because nothing was ever really explained to her. So I get it. What I don't like is that once she was faced with the truth, she didn't really try to understand how upsetting that would be. And she said, you know, we treated you guys so nice. And that maybe the players, I'm sure that's true. I'm sure the Romanian team and the Great Britain team, you know, in the whole run up to the event, I'm sure they got along fine. And I'm sure the Romanian team was very hospitable to them. But you can't, like, look at the way that the crowd is acting and say, yeah, we treated you so nice. How could you expect to be treated better than that? Like, <laughs> No, but to these players, they feel that this is par for the course with patriotic team events. Mm-hmm. And even beyond that, in, in individual events, they claim that, say, Kirstea is playing Coco Vandewey in Indian Wells. 
she's of the opinion that she would expect to have to deal with really bad shit, right? right? And so Kirstea said, you know, we've been called gypsies, we've been called all sorts of horrible things around the world, and we just deal with it. We don't cry about it. And so there are two things that stick out for me there. First of all, that's fucking racist, and that's inexcusable. Mm -hmm. And I know, I know that Romanian players are subject to that specific slur, Mm -hmm. gypsy. But my second thought about that is just because you don't cry doesn't mean that it's weak that someone else is brought to tears because of it. The thing is, what this fragility, right? This emotional fragility. Who is more fragile than a man who's offended and comes out and cusses out every last person around him? Like, who is more fragile than that? Umpire, opposing captain, opposing players. Reporters. Reporters. Calling the reporters stupid repeatedly, Elena Crooks. Mm-hmm. Like, crazy. Calling reporters whores. I, I just don't understand how that is not viewed as being emotional. And how that because isn't... Because it's, it's aggressive and male? That, that it's not emotional? <laughs> so, but a woman is brought to tears and she's weak. No, because these are the expectations we have of men right. and women, right. right? We don't expect men to be any better than that. If they are, give them a fucking medal. Right, that's true. And by the same token, women like face any little adversity, you expect them to fall apart and cry. These mm. are the dichotomous narratives that we've set for the two sexes in society, mm. right? And it's fucking bullshit. <laughs> like, man, this this whole thing has really pissed me off and stressed me out. There's so much going on here. Because Kirstea also mentioned, you know, we're a small country. And a lower country, A lower, said. right. And you want to blame us for everything. And it shows you that the political is personal and the personal is political. Mm-hmm. That sports is about politics. You can't ex- escape these things. Mm. You know, when her coach was criticized, her go-to was to stick up for her country like a geopolitical sense it's so complicated when you when you are from a country that is that is historically deemed lesser than mm. and even in contemporary days mind's eye you think of great britain and then romania you don't think of romania as a greater country than great britain you know like or a world power right? exactly it's a this is a legacy of colonialism and it takes me all the way back to growing up in Jamaica and living in a third world country and being a huge track and field fan and a cricket fan and feeling, especially getting coverage of these events from North American outlets in track and field where I'll never forget Bob Costas referring to Merlene Ati and the Jamaican track team as those Jamaican speedsters. You know, very dismissive, very, you know oh, what a cute little performance by these little Jamaicans. Whereas the American team is really going to be the ones to win everything. You know, this was a cute little performance. And on the cricket field, England being the colonial power, playing the West Indies, a collective of Caribbean islands, every time the West Indies stepped on the cricket field against England... It was a huge deal. The The Caribbean people, the Jamaican people, we all felt a sense of pride in beating the Massa, beating the colonial master at their own game. And so this is the type of thing that I imagine Kirstea is alluding to, that, you know, this lower country business. 
we always have a chip on our shoulder when we play countries that have historically more access, more power, who control everything in sport and in life and in politics. You said the politics is personal and the personal is political. Like, this is what that means. These things that we're witnessing in sport don't happen within a vacuum. They happen within the larger context of sport, of world politics, of the history of, of human life. In Jamaica, we have a saying, Willikal but Witalawa. And what that means is that while we are a small, a very small country with not many resources, where training facilities pale in comparison to the likes of England, to the likes of the United States in cricket or track and field or tennis, we take great pride in our output, in the fact that we are able to compete on a, on a global international stage with the likes of these countries that have much more at their disposal. And again, that is what and where I think Kirstia was coming from. Yeah, and I mean, uh, who could blame somebody for seeing a great a British team as like an invading force, you know? right? Um, I mean, during our lifetimes, Romania was behind the Iron Curtain. It was a communist country. It's, you know, Romania has been invaded and has fought over territory with a lot of different powers around it. It's it's kind of instructive to me that that's some place that they go to kind of defend what is really terrible behavior. But it makes sense. But she wasn't necessarily... Who's defend... Who's... Kirstea. Yeah, but who's terrible behavior? Nastasi. I don't think she was defending Nastasi mm. per se. I think she was keeping it at a distance because she claimed well, she didn't true. hear it, right? It was more like... It was more it, the crowd. It wasn't fair to her. Yeah. It, it wasn't fair to either player, right? Well, this is the thing. I... I fully believe that we need to give all these players a free pass for mm -hmm. this weekend because yeah. none of this is precedented. Yeah. Like, Kirstier was saying to the umpire, you know, well, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? Like, the umpire doesn't know what to do either. <laughs> like, you can have the rule books or whatever, but in that moment where crazy shit is going down, are you really going to be able to follow the letter of the law to a T and handle all these moving parts, all these emotions, all these batshit crazy mm. people coming at you. <laughs> and by the same token, like there is no one correct way for these players to respond to it. Like, yes, you could want Kirstia to be more understanding of what was going on with Kanta. Right. But she's having her one moment in time, potentially. Will she ever be a Grand Slam winner? No. You know, not that like this was a mm. big Fed Cup tie, but like Begu was probably the player that everybody expected to play content in that match, but they went with Kirstier mm. instead. And so she's given this opportunity on home court to to score this big upset, and she's like, what the fuck is going on? You know, right. like, See, for me, like, I don't really understand why we need national competitions at this point. We have the Olympics. I just don't think a lot, not much productive is coming from this national pride. As a as a world, we're moving past national borders. National identity is becoming less and less important. And these sort of competitions seem very antiquated to me. I think that 
It's clear that there's far-right movements across the entire world that are trying to make national identity the most important yeah. identity. And that is a really dangerous idea to me. Expense it's divisive. We've seen world wars start because of fervent nationalism. At the expense of immigrants and people who have lived across right. borders. Because right? it's a national identity in order to exclude, right? Yeah, because we have, in tennis, many players who've played for different countries in these team events. Mm -hmm. And we also have players who come to herself. Like, she grew up elsewhere, and yet she's playing for Britain. No, mm -hmm. that wasn't... She could be playing for anywhere else. Like, people aren't necessarily born and raised in the same place and play for that country anymore. Right. And so it makes the whole concept of playing for country, playing for flag and country, kind of obsolete in a way. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of manufactured national pride. I'm sure the players still feel it, and that's fine, but, like, this is a perfect example of how it's impossible to keep the political out of the sport. Fine, yes. Mm-hmm but also how it can all go terribly awry, especially when when we know from his personal history that Nastasi is probably the perfect candidate to be a powder keg to just blow this whole shit up. Right. And we also see, I mean, some people love the Davis Cup atmosphere, they call it, mm -hmm. which is a euphemism, really. Like, you just, in these national competitions, you see crowds behaving like crazy. Like soccer crowds, football crowds. Yeah. And to me, like, that's that's why I watch tennis, because it's not football. <laughs> and that's that's great, like, if you like all sports, but that's just not for me. No. I, I don't I, like it. Absolutely, I feel the same way. Like, whenever crowds are going crazy at tennis matches, I feel, frankly, unsafe. Well, and but it's not just crowds going crazy. It's, like, crowds waving the flag of their country. I just get a little, like, ugh. And I'm including Americans. Yes. Like, this is... Almost. I, I am coming from a country where nationalism is fierce and fearsome. But for me, especially Americans. Right. <laughs> and so I'm not, I'm not talking about nationalism in Eastern Europe. Like, that's not what this is about. No. I'm not talking about the Romanian crowds. I don't know how to sort of put a bow on this. It's just, first of all, Nastasi needs to be, like, far, far away from tennis. The ITF, WTA, etc., in general, need to just be... Well, grow a spine, honestly. When people behave like this, you blacklist them. And listen, the ATP, as recently as 2015, the ATP had Ilinistasi as one of the named legend groups for the World Tour Finals. Yes. 2015, it rotates, apparently. I did a little bit of research on it. And have we heard anything from the ATP? Will we hear anything from the ATP? The ATP is perfectly happy to just collect the Federer Nadal coin, well, right? They are just over the moon with what's going on this year, <laughs> I bet. The right? ATP also doesn't give a good goddamn about women's tennis. They don't. They've demonstrated. But we know that the ATP is coming from a dark place not longer than, say, 15 years ago, mm. where, where the men's tennis situation was bleak. Right. <laughs> and could be again. Yeah, like, they have had... In terms of sporting bodies, they have had unprecedented luck with the string of all-time great players mm -hmm. that they've had over the last fifteen years. They've Federer, had like they've had like a NBA dream team era, basically, and it keeps coming mm -hmm. because Federer is back again, Nadal is back again, 
And you gotta believe Murray and Djokovic will be back again. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And so they coast on those laurels that they've done very little to cultivate and keep their shit in order. Right? Like, they just feel like they're gonna have these guys raking in the dough and everything's gonna be okay. When it comes... When that chicken comes home to roost, I will be ready to eat that fucking chicken. <laughs> because... you just ready to say, I told you so. Yes. Like, you had... There, there's been just endless examples of men being out of line, saying crazy, stupid, offensive, misogynistic shit, and the ATP doing damn near nothing, giving slaps on the wrist here and there, and that's it. You want to say, fine, this is an ITF event, the, the Fed Cup, and it's beyond their purview? Well, you know what? Like, not everything has to be strictly within your purview. Like, this reflects poorly on you because Mm -hmm. like you have used this dude to promote your sport as well and most fans really don't know the difference between itf atp exactly uh, like it you know it doesn't make sense yeah so anyway and if this fed cup fucker with nastasi wasn't enough to get you riled and just worked and turned all the way up (laughs) max eisenbud i've Okay. Oh my god. I feel like this Fed Cup stuff was orchestrated to distract from the Eisenbud Sharapova stuff. Because <laughs> listen, I've, I've wondered how, after Max Eisenbud essentially threw himself under the bus, mm-hmm. or allowed himself to be thrown under the bus in that whole explaining why Sharapova didn't catch the Meldonium thing. You know, he was on vacation yeah. and didn't take his papers with him or whatever. (laughs) It was the most amateur, basic (laughs) bullshit, right? Yeah. How, if you're Maria Sharapova, is this dude still on your payroll? Do you want to know what I think? No, but I know... Well, I know what you think. But also, having read the piece on Sharapova that you and Caitlin talk about in the upcoming interview, Mm -hmm. and you all, please, read that when it comes out. Subscribe. If you haven't subscribed, subscribe. Read all that stuff. In that piece, it's described Eisenbud's involvement in Sharapova's career from the very start, from even 2000. Like, he's been with her from before she was somebody, before she Mm. was even thought to be somebody, pretty much. Like, he was on board knowing that she was going to be his meal ticket from the start. Mm -hmm. That's gross. Well, I mean, that's what it is. But, and so is it that you know, she's beholden to him because he's been the architect of all this great stuff for her, or... No. Here's the thing. He is her attack dog. That's become clear. But the thing about him missing the emails and not looking through the documents properly, she doesn't blame him because she feels that the powers that be have done her wrong. She doesn't think that she came out and said, I take full responsibility. But... But... But in every single but public appearance and statement since but it's been clawing back that responsibility. There have been it's been saying, Well, I took responsibility last year. However, you did the, the they didn't tell me it was buried in some email that I didn't read. Um, the ITF is trying to destroy me. All of these things have conspired to get her out of tennis. Really, do you really think that the people who make money from tennis want her out of tennis? No, I don't think so. And also, this is the thing that we've talked about this whole thing 
from the start. There, if you were inclined to defend Sharapova, there have been many ways that you could make that argument. Mm-hmm. But she has failed at every turn to implement a PR strategy that would be favorable to her. Right. And so at this point, it's, and we've deduced this long ago, it's like, I give zero fucks. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this but- this is the cherry on the, what is it, the icing on the cake, the cherry on the pie. <laughs> the, the cherry on top. The, the saltfish <laughs> to the ackee. Like, this is... <laughs> This is the culmination of everything because Max Eisenbud is out here in these streets saying the most vile, disgusting shit. Like, calling Agarod Wanska and Caroline Wozniacki journeymen. Yeah. Like, these journeymen should be happy, should be thanking the stars that with Serena out, they now have a chance to get that one their last, big, their last their chance. only chance and like does this dude has he ever watched tennis because they don't have any chance to win Roland Garros <laughs> like if they if either of them are going to win a major it's not this one do you know what I mean that's that's beside the point but a player who was number one for um I don't know about 50 weeks longer Six. than Ch- no listen 50 weeks longer okay. than Sharapova I was going to say 60-something weeks she <laughs> right. was number one. Wozniacki. Yes. That's that's not a journeyman player, right? And Radwanska is somebody who made the Wimbledon final and played Serena tougher than Maria has yeah. in damn near every match that they've played over the last 15 years. Mm. Let's let's talk that, about that, that truth, T. That is an tea. ugly truth. Let's talk yes. about that truth, T. Right? Right. So they haven't won majors, but not everyone who hasn't won majors is a scrub. No. Right. So, These are perennial top 10 players. It's just, it's rude, and it's so messy. It's rude and as fuck is the, what it but is. But the thing is, here's what I think. It has her fingerprints all over it. Because, you know, people have told me... I've been talking a lot of shit on Twitter about this, right? People have... <laughs> <laughs> that's true. People have told me Max is the best at what he does, right? Like, he is the best at making money for his players, I will not deny that. Look, Lena, we see all these articles now about how much money she's making in retirement, right? right? <laughs> like that, right. that pedigree is there. But at a certain point, and I know this is where you're going, mm-hmm. like these players are great enough to make that money without him. That's the thing. So Max has certainly made Maria money, but Maria is one of those few athletes who can take her pick, who can say, listen, Max... I make you a lot of goddamn money, too. I don't want you representing me in that way. Maria could hire me, and I could make ten mistakes on day one, and she would still rake... She'd still be the top-earning female athlete next year. True. Right? She is the richest female athlete ever, who ever lived. So my, But my point is, if her agent is out there talking like this, it's because she wants it. I don't want anyone to have illusions about that. Because she's an extremely powerful person, a business person at this point, she could easily say, I don't like how you're representing me in public. Don't do that. She would never do that. She loves this mess. She loves it. She, I mean, I don't know how people have such a short memory. She's been talking shit since 2004. She's rude. Like she is, she talks shit about everybody on court. And the, she told the crowd to go up your fucking asses in France. Like <laughs> this carefully curated 
image of Maria Sharapova and her branding is something that's talked about front and center in that piece that's in Racket Mag number mm-hmm. three, right? And this is something you talk about with her as well, because in that piece with her being Caitlin Thompson, mm-hmm. because in that piece they make the comparison of Sharapova being Taylor Swift and Serena being Beyonce, <laughs> right? Which yes, we have as so well in good. our Tennis Divas so episode. Good. It's it's perfect. And this fits that narrative. You know, Max mm. gets to be out there acting like a fool mm. and stirring shit up. And she gets to to rise above all the haters. Yeah. Rise above all the drama, as <laughs> Candy Burris would say. <laughs> just just don't believe that he's off the leash. That, that's what I'm saying. Like, Because that, that is what people think, right? right? Like, oh, my God, he's gone rogue again. If he's, gone, if he's off the leash, it's because Mama has let him off the leash. <laughs> and listen... I want to shout out my mom because from way back, she always used to say, you are the company you keep. Be careful about who you associate yourself with because that reflects on you. And here it is just proving true through my adult life. Listen, I don't want to diminish what Miss Michelle has said <laughs> because that's something my parents have said too. And yeah. I feel like it's parenting 101. It is. <laughs> but uh, apparently people just don't get it. It's life 101. Mm-hmm. So, like, don't be fooled by this bullshit. But you know how parents have, like, their go-to sayings? Yes. That happened to be one of them. For my, for my father, it was always, you're only as good as your word. And you know, you mm. even said to me last night, like, I was confessing some things that I had done in my past. <laughs> you're like, <laughs> what? You are such a square now. Yeah, like, for you real. follow all the rules. You, you know, there's no shading outside the lines. And that's a very important thing for me because I've always, whenever I was writing on ruled lines, on ruled paper, I always wrote within the lines. It's a thing, it's a thing for me. Like, and that's just how my life is informed at this point. Well, your father can sleep easy because you are honest to a fault. Mm -hmm. And I mean, not in a cliched way, like literally to a fault. Like it pisses me off. (laughs) (laughs) But we're, we're straying from the point here. The thing is... Maria's going to be back very, very soon. In a matter of three days. It's now Sunday night, mm-hmm. 9.48 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And Ooh, yeah, come that, Wednesday... That ban is almost over, guys. Right? I hope she didn't get scheduled to play she on Tuesday. May, she may be in the Stuttgart bunker right now. <laughs> hitting on some court that's just meters off-site. I, <laughs> practicing. I hope she better be careful, man. She's going to be playing Vinci in her first match. Mm -hmm. And then, wouldn't you know, she may play Agarodvansky (laughs) in her second match. (laughs) And let me tell you, that could be... Look, I hope Germany has their popcorn stocked in their grocery stores. Because, my God. Man, this coming week, like, the draw is just primed for drama. So I I can't imagine what's going to happen. And imagine this is without Petra, without Vika, without Serena. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, tennis survives. It, it does. And now for uh, <laughs> the part of the episode where we celebrate something that's never been done before. Rafa Nadal winning one tournament ten times. Mm-hmm. And it is the afterthought, 40-something <laughs> minutes into this episode. It's like, oh yeah, that happened. Uh, we assumed that was going to happen eventually. But it is... When you think about it, just the the kind of longevity and consistency that's required to win a tournament ten times is just, it's incredible. 
the the great Roger Federer has won Hala eight times. That you know, that's the most he's ever won. And Hala is like a a C level tournament. <laughs> Let's be real. Like this is a Masters okay. one thousand event. Right. But like, we were talking about on the last episode previewing Monte Carlo and the clay court swing that oh my god wow Rafa has a really tough draw and it's like you can't pay attention to that bullshit mm-hmm. anymore Rafa won this tournament without beating a top 10 player right 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 like you just cannot pay attention to draws anymore really Djokovic lost to Goffin Murray was out let me tell you we're gonna get into that you know Rafa poor sportsmanship bullshit in a little bit mm. But big, big shout out and kudos to Goffin because he played the tennis of his life in that quarterfinal against mm-hmm. Djokovic. Like, I have not seen a two-handed backhand firing missiles like that down the line before. Like, it was crazy. Mm-hmm. And he's a little dude. Yeah. But we've seen him in person and sort of marveled at the the pace that he's able to, to generate. And you marvel at that backhand. Like, his backhand is legit. I watched him face on at the the Rogers Cup in Toronto just practice backhands for like 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's a thing of beauty. And then we watched him play Mofis in that same tournament. And that was the shot that he deployed at will. Over and over and over. Uh, yeah. It's good for him because I feel like people view him, and I'm guilty of this too, as somebody who will just never quite get there. You know, like he is... Mm-hmm good but not quite good enough to be great and this could have been the stepping stone for him because Djokovic did not play badly no and it's it's the kind of match that you expect Djokovic to endure and pull out yeah and in the past those passing shots and those ground strokes that missed by just an inch in that match against Goffin might have gone in previously Mm -hmm. and it's the same kind of thing that we've we've lived through with Nadal for the last year and a half these minuscule margins the inches that are the millimeters that these shots are missing by that makes such a huge difference that's probably what's still keeping Djokovic back from regaining top four Mm. but part of that too is these other players they have gotten the confidence now we've seen Dimitrov we've seen Zverev we've seen Kyrgios Nogofan Jack Sock is playing well this year these 10 to 25 ranked players they no longer have the terminal fear against these top players. And so it's not just that these top players aren't playing like they used to. Like, there's a narrowing of the gap, right. I feel. And we have to give, at some point, credit to these players for raising their level. And that's what we saw from Goffin this week. Leading into this semifinal with Nadal, because at 3-2, Goffin serving up a break in the first set... The match already 40-something minutes long. This is where the incident happens. Mm-hmm. So the incident was that Nadal hit a shot. It was called out. He didn't ask for the line to be checked, but the umpire Cedric Morier decided to come off the chair and check the mark himself. So Rafa thought the game was over. They both did. Which would have been 4-2 for Goffin. Right. And so it was. it was a pretty critical juncture. In that first set, right? So Morier checks the wrong mark and says, overturns and says, no, that was in. And so it goes back to deuce. They played a few more deuces and Rafa won the game and it evened up to three all. So from there, Golfin won 
one game. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was it took the wind out of his sails. Like it knocked him out completely. And I mean, we're talking about he won. It like it wasn't the games weren't even close after that. And so the crowd totally turned. And I'm not sure if the crowd was mad at Rafa or mad at Morier or just annoyed at the whole situation because it was like terrible. It was just an egregious decision by Morier to run out and look at that ball. Morier didn't like, even at the point at which Goffin is losing his mind mm-hmm. saying you are totally wrong. That's the wrong ball. Morier doesn't try and confer with the lines judge. Who is closer to the ball? Who was correct? Yes. <laughs> nobody was asking Mori to get involved. It's insane. Like, nobody was asking for this. And people are then using Rafa's response to the ball being out as evidence that he knew, he knew mm. that the ball was out. And thus, he should have given the point to go far. Right. So it was on the other side of the court. To be clear, Rafa hit the forehand from you know how far behind the baseline he is. Mm. <laughs> And it goes long cross-court to Goffin's backhand. Yeah, so he's probably like 70 feet away. Yeah. Right? And the call is made. Rafa puts his head down and walks horizontally along the baseline to the other side, Mm -hmm. preparing for his service game. Right. And then this bullshit happens. Now, there must be a difference between recreational players and professional players in being able to tell what your shot does, what your ball does, where Mm. it lands, what you can reasonably be expected to assume the ball does, right? Like, if I hit that ball that Rafa did, I'd be like, fuck if I know. (laughs) Like, maybe professional players have a better gauge on these things. But still, like, it's so far away. There's a net involved. Mm. Rafa hits with so much topspin. Like, I can tell you from playing Chad CC Smooth 13 in... Charleston, that when somebody's hitting that much topspin to you, like you don't know where the fuck that ball is landing, <laughs> <laughs> or what it's doing when it exactly bounces, like right? you're just trying to survive. Mm. <laughs> and I'm just thinking to myself, how is this such a huge deal that this is now an indictment of Rafa's character? Right. That we are going to then say, Mister Pete Bodo, that I'm going to go over to my ESPN column and write this hack job of a piece where I repeatedly misspell Cedric Maurier's name. <laughs> like, it wasn't already enough of a dumpster fire, this article. <laughs> you could not even, like, your copy editor couldn't even be bothered to Google. Right. Like, the th- this is a total aside, but as a copy editor in this day and age, you have a very simple job because you don't have to go look at old press clippings to, to like, confirm somebody's name. Google! It's it's all over the place. It's Google. Yeah. Anyway. And listen, this happened the same time the Nastasi shit was going down. This is why I was late for work. Like, me trying to sort through and siphon through the shit. This was never going to be a bigger story than Nastasi that day. So quit right. trying. Quit doing the most to make this a thing. So... It's clickbait. Yeah, it is. Clickbait just to a T. Like, I don't don't listen to Pete Bodo because way back in the day, probably more than 10 years ago, he wrote this article for Tennis Magazine 
calling the Chinese up-and-coming players China dolls. Oh my okay? god. Oh my I'm not joking. I don't god. know if anyone remembers that, but I remembered very clearly. And like you you have lost your right to have an opinion for me after you publish something so fucking stupid. He's one of the poster children for all these embedded sport journalists who failed to adapt yeah. and adjust mm-hmm. to the digital age. Yeah. Just like just be better. Anyway, could Rafa have conceded the point? Yes. Absolutely. He could have. Should he have? Mm, not really. Like, it's not his job. <laughs> Morier took it upon himself to change the course of the match unilaterally. That's what he did. That's not his job. His job is to call the lines. And do That's we, not the players' jobs. And do we think that Rafa could have been absolutely 100% sure that that ball was out? Like, you really think I in that know. moment no idea. that Rafa would be like... Because if you're making that charge, you're saying, yeah, Rafa mm-hmm. 100% knew that that ball was out. How could how could we ever know that? For you to then go write this spurious article. Is he more responsible because he's a top player? And yeah. the biggest evidence that this is making the biggest mountain out of a molehill is the reaction between the two players at net at the end of the match. Mm-hmm. Because Goffa was not upset with Rafa, no. nor was he upset with Rafa in press. But he did not shake Morier's hand. He certainly did not. And they took a shower together after. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Rafa was like, you know, I spoke to Davi in the shower and we talked about our things, but not that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, uh, well, inquiring, but, but let, inquiring minds want back to know. Up, let's back up. You were in the shower together and you were doing what exactly? What did you talk about? <laughs> He must know that he's just fueling fantasy, right? (laughs) The thing that I've been seeing in defense of Rafa from a lot of his fans, in particular, is then turning the lens onto Goffa and saying, well, hey, hey, boo, (laughs) if you're trying to be a top player, how in the world can you then, at that critical juncture in the first set, allow that to define the rest of your match? Like, you have to be mentally more Mm -hmm. strong to then recoup and recover and not yeah. let that derail the match. And to that that's, I say that's not very nice. To that I say that's very mean spirited and not very nice. Because you aren't out there trying to play Rafa Nadal, who while he might not be at his best, is still better than damn near everybody on clay. And mm-hmm. beating Nadal on clay is still a very tough ask physically and mentally. And so when that happens, who's to know? And, like, talk about kicking someone when they're down. Right. He was the one who was wronged. Right. The man just came off the biggest win of his life Mm. and was in the throes of a competitive first set against Nadal. Like, let the man just live. So, lost in all of this is that Nadal beat Ramos Vignolas in the final fairly easily. He won his 10th Monte Carlo title. He could win his 10th Barcelona title this year. And, and God forbid, we bring up the big one. Let's just leave that. But Rafa has put together a very, very strong start to the year. La decima más grande del mundo. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so coming up next is my interview with Caitlin Thompson, who is the publisher of Racket Magazine. She's also the co-host of our friends over at the Main Draw podcast. With Chris Neary. Mm -hmm. So we've been on Main Draw. 
She has been on ours before. She's back. It's an absolute pleasure to talk with her. She's obviously promoting issue three of Racket Magazine, but uh, I think we had an interesting conversation about journalism. She's been a journalist for, for many years. We talked about what it means to preserve access to sources and, and how that affects the quality of writing. We talked about the European clay swing and grass, which is kind of Racket Magazine's milieu, kind of their aesthetic, if you will. They have a great caricature of Maria Sharapova on the cover of issue three, which mm-hmm. I'm sure you've seen around the internet. Talk about that. So please uh, enjoy, and we'd love to hear your thoughts. Hi, Caitlin. Hi, James. How are you? Great. Uh, thank you for coming on the Body Serve. We are really excited to have you back. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. And this is kind of a, a recurring thing. We've been on your show. You've been on our show now twice. The pod, the family that pods together, uh, I don't know, <laughs> enjoys each other's company, right. I guess. Um, I absolutely find your show delightful. Um, it was a pleasure having you on the main draw over where I podcast with a guy named Chris. And um, it's really fun to tweet with you guys because... Um, I feel like we have a very similar sort of uh, enjoyment of the the pro tour and tennis ephemera. I don't know. I don't want to be presumptuous, but it feels like, it, you know, we're on the same page. I, I think we do. I think aesthetically we have a lot in common, <laughs> at least what we appreciate. Uh, I noticed you tweeted the other day that the main draw is all about fashion and butts. That's true. Yeah. And I feel I mean, like it's mostly about that. I don't want to say it's all about that. <laughs> the best episodes concern fashion and butts. I mean, you know, you can go anywhere for tennis commentary that talks about like rankings or, you know, the day in and day out of the tour. I feel like my partner, Chris and I, you know, we played in college, both of us. So we know the game decently, but we just like talking about how silly all the ephemera is. And this latest episode, we got into hair a lot. We were talking about, um, how Nick Kyrgios probably travels with Private Barber and who has the best hair game. And my partner, Chris, says Milos, actually. Really? Has the best hair on the tour. That so. is, that's a controversial choice. I know. I said the same thing. He, he called it a, a, co- a combination of Mad Men and the Weimar Republic. Oh, my. <laughs> I feel like maybe Nick's or Milos's takes the most work. Uh-oh. Sorry about that. I had a three-year-old just jump into the room. (laughs) He can come on, too, if he wants. (laughs) He's a little inarticulate, but he does love tennis. (laughs) Okay, so let's get into why you're here. Racket Magazine has had two issues. The third one is coming up shortly. And uh, we just wanted to give you a chance to talk about what's in the upcoming issue, what you find exciting about the magazine going forward. Yeah, I'll give you the whole lay of the land. I think um, issue number three is, if I dare say, it's our strongest issue. I think it's the best thing we've made. Um, And I'll tell you why, but just as an aside, getting to do a project like this, you know, my partner David and I are journalists, and this is like our dream, obviously, to do this. We both still, you know, work pretty full time on other projects as well. But, you know, this is we looked back on about a year ago, right as we were gearing up to launch and looking at, you know, a dream list of contributors, a dream list of illustrators, of photographers and writers. And we've already exceeded um, the amount and caliber I think we were expecting to get. So this issue really, I think, is our strongest one yet, just because it's it's getting closer and closer to, to the dream that we had in our mind. And it looks crazy. Um, you guys have seen the cover. It's a Wilfred Wood original. That name probably doesn't mean much to a lot of people, but he is this sculptor who makes clay kind of grot- 
grotesque clay busts of celebrities. And he really wanted to do one of Maria Sharapova. We were planning on having him do one, you know, months down the line for another issue. But he said, oh, I really have always wanted to sculpt Maria. She has such an interesting face. It has so much tension in it. Hmm. And we thought, oh, let's speed this up and have him do our Maria, you know, the Maria cover, which uh, accompanies a wonderful story by this this writer named Sarah Nicole Prickett, who um, is this woman who founded an adult magazine. She does celebrity profiles. Again, she does not do much in the tennis realm. Not, not a lot of our writers do. And that's by design. Like, we really want people who have something interesting to say, like, sort of about a larger cultural sort of conversation and having them dip their toes into our waters in the tennis world feels like a good way to sort of, you know, make those two worlds interact a little bit. And she's written this beautiful piece. Well, I really love it. I, I think you've you've read it and you can tell me what you think. But We have, yeah. It's such a, it's such actually a very sympathetic piece. It, it's very human. And I think, you know, obviously Maria coming back to the tour, there's controversy, there was cheating, she admitted it, you know, I think everyone has their own personal feelings about her in a way that a lot of people, you know, athletes who become iconic sort of tend to engender. But we were really more interested in like, what must it be like for this person who has essentially sold her face, her brand, her ideas, her name um, to the larger world since before she maybe even had them, you know, since before she had original ideas. And, you know, I was really struck by something she said a few years ago when she was talking about why she launched her candy line. And she said, you know, I always wanted to have my own brand. It wasn't like, I love candy. Right. Or, or <laughs> you know, I, I have a sweet tooth. It was, I always wanted to have my own brand. And it was like, whoa, that is an interesting person. I wonder what's under there. And so, you know, obviously we asked Ma- Max uh, Eisenberg, her agent, and IMG and all the people. And, you know, we, we went through the, all the channels to try to get her. She doesn't sit down with most people. Um, and not getting her allowed Sarah to you know, really just sort of imagine what's in her head. And I think she did it. I, I think she did a really, really nice job. It's not, it's not actually pro or anti-Marie. It's just sort of a meditation on, you know, what is it like for this person? Let's, let's try to get into inside that space. And I think it's very rackety. So I'm really, I'm really delighted with it. I think it's a strong package. Yeah. I would say it complicates Maria in a way that most sports journalism doesn't. Yeah. Uh, because it's so, so easy to see her as a villain. And uh, so much of the tennis world does. I mean, even you say even the other uh, players do. Oh, absolutely. Probably especially the other players. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, But the fact that she wanted to have a brand, you know, more than I love candy. I, you know, there's something so purely ambitious and capitalist about that Mm -hmm. statement. That's so uh, just authentically Maria. Right. (laughs) Exactly right. And I think like if that's an authentic uh, communicate from somebody's like inner soul what else is in there because that's interesting and right. I think you know yeah like we're not here to try to like make you know we're people who exist in the, the sort of like journalism and media world but we're not and those are the people who are in our orbit and you know having access to athletes is cool but it's not what we need to thrive really those it doesn't require access to tell the kind of stories we want to tell and i think so much else of sports journalism is just about that it's pay for play Mm -hmm. it's it's why you end up with these you know sure you can get serena or novak or you know maria or roger to sit down with you but you know what are you going to get that's interesting not much if we're honest and so for us like we are not trying to reach the, the 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 readers who care about the fact that we were in the room with Maria or not 
And so that really frees us to sort of say like, oh, this is what we think is interesting. This is what we think will help somebody who doesn't care at all about, you know, uh, uh, her, you know, newfound game on clay or, you know, her, her wild card into Stuttgart or whatever. They don't know what that tournament is or what a wild card is. But, oh, this is an interesting look into a person, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that's like, again, where we really want to shine, especially now. I mean, you know, look, like all of the tennis media is now consolidated in America into one company owned by one family. Right. And the tennis channel now owns tennis magazine, tennis.com. And, you know, not to like, I consume those products too, cause I'm a super fan, but our magazine isn't for me. It's for the people who I know who don't know anything about this, who would never buy the tennis channel or, or pick up a racket really. Mm-hmm. And so while everybody else is scrambling to have access and to get, you know, the behind the scenes interviews, I guess I'm sort of calling that whole notion into question and saying like, well, who cares if, if, you, if you're invited into somebody's living room, but they're not giving it any piece of their soul, don't bother kind of, you know? Right. And you touched on something that we've talked about on the podcast before. You have been a working journalist for a long time. And mm-hmm. uh, so much of sports journalism is about preserving access to players, right? Completely so true. I, I just sort of want to get your take, uh, because it's interesting to me, what sort of sacrifices are required to to keep that access, especially think, to superstars, uh, right? That's a really great question. And I, I love this topic. And it actually, one thing that is interesting, you know, I never set out to be like a sports journalist. As a matter of fact, when I got a college scholarship to play tennis at a journalism school, I very specifically remember thinking like, ugh, I'm not going to cover sports. That's so, mm. <laughs> that's just going to, that's gonna, just going to limit my worldview so much. This has been such a, you know, such a myopic experience playing tennis, which I love to be clear, but I really wanted to like get out into the world. I took a job in China working for a magazine. I immediately covered politics. And and politics and sort of international affairs, but really politics was what defined um, most of my career up until like a year or two ago. And you know, I worked for the Washington Post, I worked for Time Magazine, I worked for public television and radio. And covering politics was so instructive, actually, and heartbreaking. If I'm honest, like I thought it was going to be about ideas and um, change and policy and debate, and it was about mm. access at the end of the day, you know, again, to tell good stories, you don't have to trade access. And I see, you know, I see Maria being a really good case in point of that. Like nobody, she's not going to tell anybody anything. And what you've seen in the sort of deluge of press that's happening now with her return, you know, there's a, there's a piece in Paris match. There's a piece in, um, Spanish Vogue. There's a piece, um, you know, forthcoming, I think in Vanity Fair, one of the Conde titles, you know, and these are going to be kid gloves and they're going to be shot probably by Annie Leibovitz, but they're not going to get anywhere that she doesn't want to go. And I think at the end of the day to, to people sniff authenticity out. And I think, what that whole access journalism model, whether we're talking about tennis or politics or anything really, is uh, is really shortchanging the reader because people are not stupid, actually. They really want to feel like they're included in something. So why would I go to Vanity Fair to consume something about Maria when I could just follow her Instagram herself, right? Right. And so... Or even better, somebody who was a little bit more candid and transparent, because I'm pretty sure Maria travels the world with an army of 10 photographers just to create her Instagram account. It's a really good follow. I mean, it's like (laughs) a group, basically. Right. Um, So I'm not sure I'm like giving you a very like 
thorough or thoughtful breakdown of what access journalism requires sacrificially. But I think it's certainly intellectual rigor. It's certainly curiosity. And I think it's it comes at the expense of what actual people who could care and actually who could see some nuance in the world um, and gray areas instead kind of get treated like uh, uh, it gets it gets dumbed down. And I think nobody's better off for it, frankly. Um, and I think what it then turns into is just trying to chase a subject instead of feeling like you're actually seeing someone and, and acknowledging them. And I would rather see or acknowledge or work with people who, who want to be that candid and emotionally open because I certainly don't have to do anything. We can do whatever we want with the nice thing about having an indie weird, you know, niche mm-hmm. publication is you can do anything you want. And so we don't feel beholden to any one idea that we had. You know, we put Maria on the cover because it felt cool and we had a cool sculpture and a good story. We could have just as easily done, you know, something totally weird and random. Right. Uh, even though I would argue what we have done is decently weird. <laughs> I have seen the sculpture. It is decently weird. Yeah. I think it's interesting to see Maria kind of without the machinery that surrounds her, right? Like she has public relations down to a science. Although. I would argue she may have fumbled this one a little bit, but in the long run, it probably doesn't matter to her career. Uh, Sponsors are coming back. The wild cards are there. People want to pay to watch her play tennis. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I I don't know how much you want to give away about the piece, but I did want to point out uh, the comparison of uh, Maria to Taylor Swift and Serena to Beyonce (laughs) is an apt one because it is. uh, Taylor Swift comes with that that machinery, right? That inauthenticity. That uh, things are very carefully planned. Her Instagram is curated uh, totally. for this sort of girl power aesthetic. Uh, I, and it's something we've talked about on the podcast as well. So I wonder how you feel about that diva comparison. Is it I think useful? it's totally on point. I'm glad you brought that up because I think it's a, an easy way to sort of distill the, the things that I'm sort of nebulously grasping at, which is essentially like, yeah, Serena is more of a Beyonce and Maria is more of a Taylor Swift. And I think what certainly leaves a bad taste in my mouth about Taylor Swift, despite not like in, in addition to not liking her music, um, or maybe now that I'm trying to be more open and saying like, it's not for me, mm-hmm. uh, is that uh, it has an out of the box sort of... Um, you don't get the sense that there's an artist sort of traversing emotional terrain to sort of constantly reinvent herself and push herself the way that Beyonce does. Um, to be clear, both of them have armies of publicists and stylists and, you know, um, marketing and, and PR departments. Mm-hmm. That said, I think what we tend to visualize in, in Taylor Swift as being ersatz is this concept that she's just, you know, she's all about girl power until it actually means anything, at which point she will totally re- retread from that stance in a heartbeat, which is what you saw during the election, right? Beyonce was on stage with Hillary Clinton. Taylor Swift, despite being very vocal about girl power and all this stuff, d- declined to 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 associate herself in any way whatsoever with the campaign and you could sort of say like oh yeah sure but you know how what does politics have to do with um you know pop culture and and so on and so forth and can you blame her and no i can't but at the same time you know i can if you if you not necessarily for failing to take a stand for hillary because you know that's not everyone's cup of tea um but more just you have very few options and or sort of opportunities to to plant a flag and sort of say you know oh all the proceeds are going of my album are going to like domestic violence victims right all you know like you be put it put it put your money where your mouth is and to to beyonce and jay-z's credit they donate tons and tons of money annually um without a lot of fanfare so it's not you know it, it, it and to bring this back to a tennis sense like i think you know again maria makes a change and it feels like 
it's not somebody going through an exploratory process who all of a sudden has found a different facet of themselves and is now ready to sort of open up about it to the world the way that Serena does. I mean, Serena, you know, she's taught herself to speak fluent French. She has a degree in nail art. You know, she dabbles in fashion. I get the sense that even though these things are marketed pretty well, they're not marketing stunts. They're, oh, she has like, she contains multitudes. She's an interesting person who's interested in a lot of things. Um, And I think, you know, maybe one's just telling a better story with a more highly skilled team, but I doubt it. I think that that actually does have some bearing on what's inside those two women. And and so that might be a way for people who, who, again, might have no uh, understanding whatsoever what a, what a Serena and Marina Maria sort of their their uh, rivalry I will call it but we all know it's not really much of one but comparing them to Taylor Swift and Beyonce is a really interesting way to sort of say like yeah this is something that plays out in a lot of you know in a lot of other ways and you know there's a race thing too like obviously uh, in both examples and the idea that you know you've got these sort of like icy blondes who fit very very neatly into sort of a prepackaged notion of like Nantucket basically right. and. Serena and Beyonce, you know, don't not only being women of color, but for a lot of a lot of other reasons, our ideas of ideal bodies of uh, the way that women should express themselves, etc. You know, so I think there, there are so many ways to get at this. And you don't have to talk for one second about hitting a ball. Right? Of course. And yeah, that's something that I feel like, you know, again, no, you're not going to get that on the tennis channel or tennis.com. And, and that's a good thing. Yeah, I think you have uh, enticed me at least with the complexities <laughs> that are that are kind of bubbling over in this essay and obviously novels could be written about this Um, but if you don't mind uh do you mind if we move on to uh the petkovich story because i'm i'm just fascinated that a an active player is going to be writing for racket magazine and uh just how did that come about yeah, I mean, I don't want to commit her, uh, although we've talked a little bit about her doing something beyond, you know, on, uh, on a more, we talked about a number of story ideas, hopefully more and more, you know, will come to fruition. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote her an email uh, like two years ago. Um, and I just said, hey, you know, would you write for us? And it was pretty, you know, it was pretty straightforward. I tried to be uh, in all in all matters. Generally, I try to just be as completely, this is going to sound really weird, but I feel like the older I get, the like less uh, guarded I've learned to be. So I'm just like, Mm -hmm. Hey, I'm coming at this from a really honest, sincere, emotionally vulnerable place. We're doing something. We're pouring our hearts into it. We're not joking around. We're not, you know, this isn't, you know, a college project. We're working journalists who've Mm -hmm. been in the business for years and years and we're doing this thing. And do you want to be part of it? And she wrote back and she was like, huh, this sounds interesting. Took her a minute for us to actually sort of meet. Um, and then she, she, responded and said that she loved what she put together. I think it was easier for her to see how she might contribute once she had one in her hand. And, um, you know, and then it was just sort of an an open conversation. An active player is an interesting conundrum because, again, like, it's cool that we have Petco and we'll have a couple other players as well. Although I want to sort of distinguish her from what I think we might have cooking up with some other folks because I feel like Andrea, even though I don't know her very well, sort of embodies the idea of somebody who is actually like a pretty fully fleshed out person in in a couple of different arenas of their life, as much as I can tell anyway. And I think, yeah, she's an active player. She's got training. She's got to fly all over the world to tournaments every week and deal with press and injuries and and things that, that are probably a lot out of her control. At the same time, this is a person who's like obviously very thirsty for knowledge for engagement she's going to museums she's reading books i think she i sent her a book about celine dion because it was funny (laughs) and i think she she read it in like three days 
a lot of people in sports, I think generally are, you know, very, and I, that's not to critique them, but occasionally I think you'll find somebody who really wants to be engaging in the world. And she seems like that, one of those people. So that's what, what inspired me to write her originally. And then that's the sort of tone of, of how our conversations have gone since then. And when we were initially talking, she was like, Oh, I have like four ideas. How about this? How about this? How about this? I just finished this book. You know, it was just like, it kind of, it kind of came spilling out of her, um, in a way that made me think, Oh, cool. She must not get to do this very much. And so maybe this is, it's cool for us, but at the same time, like not that many people who read our magazine are going to know who she is. That seems crazy to you and me. Cause obviously we follow the tour, but the goal is get somebody to write for us who could seem like a writer because she is and she has done a good job and we helped a little bit with edits. But for the most part, this came out fully formed and she has big ideas. Um, you can't fix that. And also, like, we don't want to stunt cast anybody. We're not the Players' Tribune where we where it is about access. Like I said, oh, right. not that many people I expect to know who she is, almost none, frankly. And I hope that that's something cool for her, too, to be like, oh, I'm getting read among this sort of intelligentsia crowd not because I'm a tennis player, but because I am a person who has insight into a couple of different worlds. And the fact that I'm a tennis player is like kind of a cool bonus. And I think that's how I framed it to her. I think that's hopefully how people take her first piece and any other sub subsequent pieces. And, you know, she wrote this really brainy thing about Willem de Kooning and Jackson Pollock and how that relates to the way that she sees her relationship with Angelique Kerber. And it was just, it was fun. I mean, it was fun to illustrate. It was fun to talk to her about. And, you know, obviously it's, she's somebody who thinks about, I mean, I'm not even an art person. I don't even like either of those painters at all. But it was sort of fun <laughs> to have an insight. When you meet somebody who's really enthusiastic about something, you know, obviously it's, it's if, if they've thought about it and she has, and if they feel it, and I think she has too, they, hopefully they, they can be articulate and, and get that out of their, out of their hearts. And I, and so far so good. I don't know what you read it. What did you think? I did. Um, uh, well, I have to say I wasn't surprised at sure. at the content, right? Because I know that Andrea Petkovic is a, well, a brainiac, right? She's probably writing in her third language. Uh, yeah, but, third or fourth, I think. Uh, yeah, but the fact that there are elements of art criticism, of mm -hmm. a sort of respect for tennis history, and then tied in with this personal narrative was a very, like, a fascinating read. And... Uh, yeah, it was better than I'm expecting. I was expecting, if I'm mm -hmm. totally honest, and that, that that's not to say I wasn't expecting something smart. It was just like, oh, she made it more personal than she needed to, and I loved that because you know it takes guts to to be personal, whether you're a professional writer or just human, frankly. And I think like that was a really cool thing. And you know that forgive me for sort of hitting so hard on that note, but I think hopefully one of the through lines of a lot of our issues. Um, whether it's the Sharapova one we're talking about or Petco's piece or anything going back into the first or second, you know, we're really trying to like, this isn't ironic. Like we're not sarcastic people. We're not kitschy. This is, this isn't an exercise in sentimentalism. This is coming from like a very, very sincere place. And I think what I'm delighted by, and I think maybe this has to do a little bit with maybe the vibes that David and I, <laughs> my co-founder are putting off is just like, we're doing this because we like absolutely love it and we're having a ball. And I think anybody who comes into our world, whether they're a world famous tennis player or somebody who's never written about tennis, like one of the people who wrote for this issue is a guy, I think, I mean, I think he's like 25 and he, he's written like three things about tennis before and, you know, at the beginning of his career. And that's great too, right? Like, because it's coming mm -hmm. from a very sort of human, like, you know, authentic place. And that doesn't mean it can't be funny or interesting or have some edge or grit, but it has to feel like it's coming from that place of desire to, to expand the conversation. And I feel like getting back to Pekka, like she came at it that way and she didn't have to. It could have been a book report, basically. And it wasn't. So we are moving into a part of the season that aesthetically seems kind of 
right up your alley right this yeah. this classic european clay monte carlo mediterranean vibe going right into the grass uh is the racket magazine staff like pumped about this or what Basically, we've already decided to uh, relocate as soon as we're able to to the Mediterranean for this stretch of the tour. Uh, David has decided we should get a boat. I think um, code <laughs> violation is what he named it, just oh, so perfect. we could dock it in all of the um, you know the harbors. I mean, nothing is as spectacular as the Monte Carlo Harbor where the tournament is taking place. Uh, you know, right now. But yeah, you nailed it. This is this is the absolute best stretch of the tournament for me. I think the aesthetics of it, obviously, the history of the game. Um, the fact that this is there's all these old world cities. Europe has a romance, I think, for everybody, especially folks who haven't grown up there. And the idea that I mean, two there's like Corinthian columns on that Rome court. Like that's right. bananas. It looks like you're playing in the Parthenon, you know? Like what who wouldn't dream you know, I, I watch tennis and I don't actually get jealous of like being able to compete at that level because I feel like I literally got as far as I possibly could. And so it doesn't like, my body doesn't like ache with desire to be doing it. But when I see these tournaments in these locales, I like want to be physically there. Right. Um, and I think that that is, there's like such a, the US Open as great as it is, or Indian Wells as great as it is, or like the WTA finals in Singapore is like cool and interesting and, and, and modern as those places are. There's just something really great about the idea that you ha you're on this like blood red drenched court that is set amidst like, you know, a beautiful, a beautiful backdrop. And it's just, ah, oh, yeah, it's basically as soon as we could possibly afford it, we're going to, we're going to, uh, head over in our boat. You guys are welcome, by the way. I oh, want to make that thank clear. Thank you so much. Yeah. That, that's basically like life goals. Yeah. Life goals. We'll just squad up, you know, champagne, get like a boat off the captain Tebes and just, you know, kind of sail back and forth. Mm -hmm. I think that that'll be, well, you'll know you've made it. I don't care if I have to, you know, work as a uh, busboy for the rest of the year, if I can just do that for like this three month stretch. Right. Like as far as I'm concerned, this could be it for tennis. Like this could be the entire season. I think actually it might be better for everybody. Um, it probably it would give you a little bit of a rest, right? And everyone people would else. get a rest. Not everyone would be injured all the time. Uh, to our listeners, if you haven't seen Racket Mag's Instagram page, please check it out. I don't <laughs> even know where you guys are getting all this amazing photography and art, but it is like a tennis aesthetes dream. Yeah. That's um that's a direct uh like a telescope into David's uh innermost like hopes and dreams. I occasionally post stuff, but this is really like David's milieu. Today we have something on Monte Carlo like what looks like some sort of like Gatsby-esque but like vis-a-vis -vis the 80s kind of Lynchian thing. There's mm -hmm. Andre Agassi, there's a dirty fuzzy ball. There's, you know, it's kitsch, it's nostalgia, it's like a picture of a fat Nick Curios training when he was about 11 wearing a Wu-Tang sweatshirt. You know, it's like, <laughs> it, it's a specific thing that um, I, I wish I could take credit for because it's awesome, but it's almost totally Dave um, just getting weird. And he's been doing this for so long, not the posting of it, but just the collecting of it, the curating of it. And I think between the two of us knowing that we had all this like stuff built up in our hearts and in our friendship and only each other to talk about it with what you're seeing with racket and our Instagram and, you know, our podcast and, and everything that surrounds it, hopefully really cherishable sort of physical object is like basically a conversation between like two friends who are really pumped about almost the entire, uh, entire same stuff. And it, and it, it's varied, but it's really, um, it's really, really deeply felt. And so, you know, anybody who, who is, 
um, at all curious, check it out. Rack and mag on Instagram. Thank you for shouting it out, but it's really funny. Dave surprises me constantly with what goes on there. Yeah. I guess let's get down to business. Where oh, business. can people find racket mag if they don't already subscribe? Um, they should already subscribe, but, um, if they don't, <laughs> but you know, no they, judgment, they, they need to, so we can get on that, um, uh, code violation yacht project. Mm-hmm. Um, we are at racketmag.com. That's the easiest. Um, racket is spelled with a C, a Q, a U, and an E, um, and then a T, obviously. But we, you can get us all sorts of places. Um, we're not, I don't think in Toronto, I apologize to you, although we're going to try to get up there this summer. Um, but most of our stockists are in New York, London. Uh, we've got a few kind of sprinkled around. If you go to racketmag.com slash stockists, you can see where we're, we're, we're being sold. Uh, but yeah, just go to our website and pick up a copy if, if you haven't already. We promise you that it's going to be a, a fun experience, but you're going to get four issues um, a year that hopefully delight and surprise you. And as we've been talking about, we're not afraid to sort of take big swings and get kind of weird with it. And I think that that's kind of the beauty of working in a medium like print paper, right? Like Mm -hmm. you, we tell you what the experience is and hopefully you like it. And so far the feedback has been pretty, pretty phenomenal. It's not, it's not based on, oh, this is a headline I'd like to click on. This is just, you're, once you pick this thing up, you're in it and hopefully you like the journey and, you know, we like making it. So I don't know if you want to answer this, but. Is there any chance you'll give us a clue into what your goals are in the future or or if you have any plans for the next batch of issues in year two? I can tell you, uh, I'm happy to sort of articulate the vision for for what I think we're doing. What we have, I can be very specific and say we're going to do a grass-scented um, issue at some point soon, hopefully the summer, if not some sometime soon. We discovered that you could scent paper, and so we were like, "Oh well, we obviously have to do that." Um, uh, you know, my dream get, and I'm working on it is Zadie Smith. We'll see if we oh get we God. can actually yeah. get land her, but we, you know, we have some friends in common um, with her her sort of scene uh, here in New York and and also in London. So you know, that's like a dream get for us. Uh, but I think more than anything else, what this experience has taught me so far is, you know, we have a couple thousand subscribers. If we get to like 10,000, that's where we can be, uh, actually totally Mm self-sustaining. So that's our goal essentially. And then from there, it's like, Oh, we want to actually do everything centered around this beautiful magazine that we feel like can help kind of expand the conversation in the tennis game. You know, like I've been talking about, like tennis has, especially in North America, like essentially one voice and it's white and it's male and it's very, uh, it's it's one dimensional to me, and it, I don't feel particularly re- reflected or spoken to. And I think what I've learned is the amount of people who want to do mini documentary films with us, give us a chance to do some uh, a yearly book that's a collection of writing, uh, longer films, illustration, like il- animated films, um, uh, talk shows, more podcasts. Like basically, the way that we see this going really well is trying to emulate a monocle where you have this sort of 360 kind of experience. And I think if the branding in tennis were better, if the tournaments were sort of doing a better job of marketing themselves, and if the the game were growing more here, and by here I mean North America, because it's certainly growing um, in Asia and other parts of the world, if it were a little bit more robust and and, and the how cool the game was was better communicated, I think we wouldn't have such grand ambitions. But the more we've gotten into it, the more people are like, oh, I've been waiting for something like this. Like I can't look at another sort of glossy page pamphlet for a tournament that just looks so dorky and it's like yeah it does look dorky we can certainly help i think uh kind of rebrand tennis a little bit to make it feel cool because it is cool if you play it and it's global 
if you watch it. And, uh, you know, if you see it in person, which is something I urge everybody to do, you understand why it's so phenomenal. And I think if you're only left to read about it occasionally in a, in a magazine or newspaper, or you get tennis magazine, or you see it on the tennis channel where you don't know any of the players and it's, it's shot from a very not compelling three quarter view where the ball doesn't look like it's moving particularly fast. You know, you wouldn't be blamed to be like, eh, I guess I'll watch basketball or fucking golf, golf, (laughs) you know? golf is a bigger sport in in north america than tennis is and that makes me it not only makes me angry it makes me resentful and so one of my goals is basically to unseat golf as uh as the preferred leisure pastime of of americans whether they ever pick up a racket or not i want them to love it and um i'm gonna win them over one by one whether it's our instagram account or our podcast or or (laughs) our beautiful magazine so that's they're not small goals i'll be honest james but they're they're big ones and you know I really appreciate the ambition. You know, these are these are big time goals. They are. They are. And I feel like if we were, you know, I'm not doing this to to, to have it be a hobby. And the, the more I do it, the more I, re- I realize I want to be doing it um, for a very, very long time. We're not doing this to like sell it to somebody, you know, I'm doing this to, yeah. to basically make everyone care about this game as much as I do and understand how cool it is. And I think um, I think we're off to a pretty good start. And so that's made my eyes open to the possibilities in a way that's like very, very energizing actually. That's amazing. I, one last question from a very selfish perspective. <laughs> sure. When is the Toronto launch party? Cause we are ready. Okay. I, uh, I'll tell you what, or even I Montreal, will we will drive to no, Montreal. No, no, no. Let's do Toronto. Let's do Toronto. Um, I'll, I would love to come up as you know, I'm a Montreal native. Mm-hmm. Um, Canada is very close to my heart. I was just in Toronto a couple months ago. I would love to go back. Um, somebody mentioned we should have some sort of party at the Drake. Oh, Does that yeah. Strike, strike, ring, ring a bell for you? Okay, great. So let's just do that. You guys are in charge. Why don't we do a, two live podcast tapings back to back, sell some tickets, get some liquor sponsors, and uh, you know we can put up a racket banner and have a party and get a cool DJ. Oh, you know, we can get like Broken Social Scene to, to reunite yeah. with Feist. <laughs> they're all toronto natives right yeah or get like metric i wonder if drake is available do you think i mean let's shoot for the stars sure <laughs> all right well this sounds like a plan so the next time we talk it's gonna be in person um, Finally. and all body serve podcast listeners are invited all right i'm looking forward to it me too i love that i love a plan i love when a plan comes together <laughs> Well, uh, I think we will leave it there. Thank you so much for coming on. I uh, really appreciate it. And uh, I hope everyone runs out and subscribes to Racket Mag because we are really happy with it in the Body Serve household. Well, I'm delighted to hear it. Thank you guys both. All right. Thank you. Take care, Caitlin. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you to Caitlin for the great interview. Please subscribe to Racket Magazine. Don't feel that just because you've missed the first two editions you can't then get them retroactively (laughs) you can still get all the racket magazine issues that you want follow racket mag on twitter at racket mag there's no u in racket mag on twitter it's r-a-c-q-e-t magazine and caitlin thompson is a great follow too Mm -hmm. she's at caitlin c-a-i-t-l-i-n uh that space what that's what's that called underscore yes (laughs) tom's T-H-O-M-P-S. She's hilarious. Hit up the main draw. Follow them on all the various media. And uh, most importantly, follow us. We're at The Body Serve on Twitter. We're at The Body Serve on Instagram. And I'm James. I'm at Elliot JMR. I'm Jonathan at Sportscribe CA. 
This has been a whirlwind last few days, last week. It's not finished. Sharpova is coming. We may be back in two days if some fresh <laughs> bullshit happens. Right. In the meantime, we hope you enjoyed the episode. Give us a review on iTunes. And till next time.